Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark 3, we're making our way through uh, Mark's gospel. We've been looking at a number of different things, particularly opposition that Jesus has been having. People coming against him. Uh, for a variety of different reasons, many of the times religious leaders coming against him, wanting him to stop uh, doing what he is doing or at least get in line with doing it the way that they do it. And Jesus has had as many confrontations. We've been looking at them. And today we're going to look at two additional confrontations Jesus has, but from a very different place, which I find is interesting. One of the confrontations Jesus is going to have today is with his own family members which I have to think came from a place of love, if you will. We're concerned about you. You're getting involved in some things. It may not end well. And from that place of love, kind of pursued him to get him to stop what he was doing. We'll talk about that as we get to it. And then the other is, again, religious leaders that are beginning to bad, or they'll badmouth him again, speak against him once again to dissuade people from following after him. But before we jump into that, last time we were together, we looked at the 12 apostles and Jesus' calling of those 12 men. Remember, Jesus had uh, thousands of people that would come after him. Many would press in on him, crush him, as it says in, in a few different places here. But he had closer groups of followers. One time he had a group, he sent out a group of about 70 followers, two by two, to go out and to do, do ministry, short-term missions, if you will. But then he also called a group of 12 And those 12, we spent some time considering a ragtag bunch of fellows, most of them barely educated fishermen. He had a former tax collector in the group. He had a man of diminutive stature, a short little fella. He had guys that had doubting problems, or at least one of them. And he had a terroristic murderer that was part of his group as well. Quite a group to assemble, particularly when your plans are to turn the organization over to them, so to speak, so that they can turn the world upside down, which is exactly what they did. These were not the, these are not the people you would have selected for that job, but they were a group of guys that made themselves available and they made themselves pliable, that Jesus could form them into the person that he would need for them to do the thing that he would have them to do. Now, if you were counting last week, we only looked at 11 of those 12. We left off the last guy, which was Judas. And so if you look at Mark chapter 3, verse 19, the very last of the, in the list, every list that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Judas is listed last. It says Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. And I I didn't want to stop on him last week because it wasn't really the vibe I wanted to leave you with. Hey, great, you know, that's wonderful to to walk out of here. The last person we're thinking of is Judas. And so we'll pick up with him this morning and we'll we'll take notice of a few things. Number one, we'll take notice. His last name is Iscariot or uh, what we would think of as a last name. That almost certainly indicates that he was a man from a place called Kirioth, Iscariot or Kirioth, which was a town in southern Judea. Now, if you read some commentaries and things like that, it's possible that Iscariot is a form of a word which refers to a small dagger. Last week, I mentioned the zealots, and the zealots would take the sword, and they'd get into a crowd where Roman soldiers were, and there was a little bit of an area between uh, the two pieces of their armor, and they would stab with that dagger in there, and they would kill. Well, that word is very similar to 
this word Iscariot. And so it's possible that it was meant to describe that the Judas was a zealot. The only, the only reason that that doesn't really ring like, yeah, that's probably it, is because Simon is called a zealot a word earlier or a phrase earlier. And if you're going to call him a zealot, then why would you call Judas something different, you know? And so it, it seems to me it's more likely that uh, Judas is from that town of Kirioth. Now, if that is the case, Kirioth is, is in the south. Every one of Jesus' other uh, apostles were from the north. And perhaps that contributed to sort of this sense of uh, alienation from the rest of the, the group. Uh, maybe he felt as if he was the odd man out. Maybe he felt he could do certain things and people wouldn't know, you know, and he could play them or snow them or whatever it may be. It also seems, as you study Judas throughout the Gospels, that more so than any of the other disciples, he seems to have misunderstood, either misunderstood or blatantly ignored, disregarded, Jesus' own interpretation of what he meant when he said that he was the Messiah. Because Judas's ideal for the Messiahship, it didn't include Jesus actually allowing himself to be killed. There are some that actually look at Judas's life and think that what Judas was trying to do was force Jesus to have to defend himself. And so he set up this betrayal so that when all the soldiers came, Jesus would have to defend himself and then he would have to be a political uh, Messiah or something like that. Now, I don't buy into that. I don't think that's really what was going on with Judas for, for a couple of different reasons. Number one is because despite walking with Jesus and hearing from Jesus and observing Jesus do all that he did for over three years, we see that Judas is dipping into the money bag and stealing money. And so there's something already that is going on there as opposed to, you know, I thought it was a good idea. It turned out to, what a blunder, you know, or something like that. Also, long before his betrayal of Jesus, we see that Jesus was aware of the fact that Judas would go on to betray him. And we read this in John chapter 6. He said, did I not choose you the 12 and one of you is a devil? Because he knew who was going to betray him. And I'll add one more thing. Uh, the, the Old Testament prophesies, it doesn't name Judas by name, but it prophesies that one of Jesus' closest followers would go on uh, to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. And we read about that in the book of Zechariah chapter 11. And so it seems to me a whole lot more is going on here than a guy trying to force the hand of Jesus and things just sort of spinning out of his own control. Now many wonder, why would Jesus choose Judas? Why would he choose Judas, especially considering that he knew that Judas was going to go on to betray him? Well, we know this. We know it wasn't because Jesus didn't know Judas was going to betray him. He did that. It wasn't because Jesus didn't have others to choose. Jesus had at least 70 that had gone out on short-term mission trips. All right? and so they were probably pretty committed people. And he had thousands that would come to follow him. So he had plenty of other people that he can chose from, choose from. Ultimately, Jesus chose Judas in fulfillment of the scripture. I think a more significant question is, was Judas ever truly a disciple of Jesus? Was there ever a time when Judas was drawn to Christ and seeking to follow after Christ? Or was this whole thing just a charade from the beginning? And the scripture doesn't really tell us. It doesn't make it very clear to us. Here's what we know. Judas had the exact same opportunities as each of the other 11 uh, apostles or disciples did. Judas wasn't perfect. 
and neither were the other apostles. Judas wasn't ready to lead a movement that would transform the world, but neither were the other apostles. But as I said last week and a little bit earlier today, God changed those other 11 and he made them ready. That change never happened in Judas's heart and in his mind. And so here's a guy, despite being consistently in the presence of Jesus, despite sitting in hundreds of Jesus's teaching sessions, and despite seeing Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle, attesting to who he is, Judas was never changed. I think that's very sobering to consider. For how many men, how many women, how many young people are active participants in a local church body but have never truly been impacted by God and his grace? That's what happened to Judas. How many people attend each of the weekly studies that a church does, for instance, or a local a college ministry, for instance, and they ser- serve that local church and they serve their community and they smile and they play the part perfectly well so that no one would ever suspect, but the reality is that their heart is very far from the Lord. That describes Judas. And it may describe some of us in this room this morning. And I say that, and I, I say it with somewhat confidence because it described me for the first four months of my journey with Jesus, where I was at every church service that they had, and I smiled and I shook hands, and people would have probably told you the neat work that was happening in that kid that's been coming here of late. But I wasn't a believer for the first four or five months or so of all that, that time that I went to church. And so in light of the consideration of Judas, here's my exhortation to each one of us in this room. Make sure that you are in the Lord. Make sure that you are in the Lord. Are you truly a disciple of Christ? Or are you, or are you someone who is just hanging out with others that are disciples of Christ? Have you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? Have you submitted yourself to his lordship in your life? And are you daily coming to him to lay down your life, to take up your cross as he instructed us, so that you might follow him? I encourage each of us, allow the Lord to search out our hearts this morning on this issue. Now, if we go back to the Mark passage, we pick up in verse 20. And Mark, once again, is going to highlight some of the opposition that was against the Lord. Now, as I said earlier, there's two different forms of opposition. One from, I think, well-meaning people, or at least on the part of his mom. Others from folks that, that come with uh, sort of the intent of malice. So let's look at that. I'm going to start in Mark chapter 3. It says, then he went, in verse 20, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. That's what his family's saying. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder their goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder the house. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent him, and they called him to him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now let's go back and look at it. Verse 20, Jesus, it says, he went home. Now Jesus' boyhood home was Nazareth. This here would be in the area of Capernaum, and we looked at that. Nazareth was about 25 miles away. That's where his mom would have lived. That's where his other brothers and sisters would have lived. And once again, Jesus now back in Capernaum. He had been there. He left. He came back. He left. And he'd been traveling around the Galilee region. Once again, he goes back now to Capernaum. And the crowds again, they gather. And so Jesus, as he has been doing, he ministers to them. He teaches them. He directs them. He performs miracles as he's been doing. And as we read previously, Mark has already told us that when Jesus would do that, the crowds would press in on him. They would crush him in the physical sense. So much so last week we saw that he had to get out on a boat to kind of get away from the people so he could speak to the people. Well, here they're pressing in on him again, but it's a different kind of pressure. And so we we understand this idea of them pushing and pushing and, and crushing him in that sense. Now the pressure is for his time and for his emotional needs, like investment in their lives. Because now it goes on to say they're pressing on him so much for his time that he and his disciples don't even have time to eat. Now, this is serious. All right, no time to eat? My goodness. His ministry work has kept him and his disciples from doing it. There's just always this need. So maybe they're grabbing something here and there. And to his family, that's tantamount to lunacy. Anyone that would put themselves in that situation, that's crazy. And so Mark, notice it tells us in verse 21 that his family hears of it and they conclude he's out of his mind. And so out of a sense of care, out of a sense of concern for his well-being, I have to think, they go and it says to seize him. Seize him means to forcibly remove him. If need be, to grab him by the collar and drag him out of there and drag him 25 miles home. Uh, is their intention, is his plan. Now some people, I'll, I'll just say this as an aside, some people are surprised to hear that Jesus had a family. They know he has a mom, they know that Joseph was, if you will, his stepfather, but they're surprised to hear that he had brothers, they're surprised to hear that he had sisters and things like that, because there, there is a teaching out there that, that Mary remained this perpetual virgin, that somewhere there's sort of this idea that sex is necessary, but it's, it's evil, and if she could carry the Messiah, well then she must not have been involved this idea. That, that's not what the Bible teaches. All right? The Bible teaches that Jesus had brothers. This passage here mentions it. So at least two. We know that he had at least four from other places. We read in the book of Matthew that Jesus also had uh, sisters. And it says there in the book of Matthew, aren't all of his sisters with us? That seems to me to indicate at least three or more. Because wouldn't you say, like, aren't both of his sisters here? If it's two, all of his sisters seems to be that we're talking about three. So he had a number of uh, brothers and sisters. Jesus was one of at least seven growing up in this home with his mom. And however long Joseph lived before it seems that he died uh, prematurely, or maybe he was older than Mary, and he died and was off the scene. And despite being close to Jesus for these 30 years, Because remember, Jesus didn't go out to do ministry until he was the age of a rabbi. And all that time before, he he was just at home, working there uh, in the carpenter shop, first with Joseph, no doubt. And then Joseph passed off, and he kind of maybe took it over as the oldest brother. And despite being close to Jesus for 30 years, and maybe because they were close to Jesus for 30 years, Jesus' own family did not believe him during his time of ministry here on the earth. 
And so even Mary, his mother, who we're told, believed the word of the angel, that remember that is in Luke chapter 1, she wondered and pondered about who her son was. We read that in Luke chapter 2. And then as she was observing things, it says she laid all these things to heart. To, again, go back and think and meditate and chew on And What does this mean? That's also in Luke chapter 2. Despite all those things, even Mary, at this stage of things, does not seem to fully understand who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And so I have to imagine, with a heart of love, her and the rest of the kids say, we got to go get your brother. You know, things are crazy and going on here. we got to go get him. we got to bring him home so that he'll be safe. Because to them, Jesus had become a religious fanatic. Now notice, he had left the security of home, hometown, all that kind of stuff, because God led him somewhere else. He left the security of a good job. He was the head of the family carpentry business, and he walked out on that. Huge crowds had begun to follow their brother, their son, and claims were being made about Jesus that, in no, that he in no way sought to rebuke. People were claiming that he was the Messiah, and Jesus didn't kind of stop them. Now, if your brother, a lot of us have brothers, sisters, if your brother or sister said that they were the Messiah, would you have trouble believing that? You probably would. And so these guys had a little trouble believing it. Another thing, the authorities were openly opposed to Jesus now. And there was talk that perhaps their, their, Jesus' family was picking up that they were trying to destroy, to kill Jesus. And despite that, no doubt that word got back to Jesus. He wasn't backing down. And so this family here, in their minds, only a crazy person would throw away their safety, their security, and their physical well-being by doing these sorts of things. And so again, Jesus was a religious fanatic in their mind, and they need to step in for his own good. Some of us in this room may have heard those very same accusations, haven't you? Some of us in this room, because of efforts to follow Christ, to follow his word as led by his Holy Spirit, we've heard comments like this, so-and-so is in a cult. How many of you have heard that word, that somebody accused you of being in a cult? I've had that uh, accusation. Some of us have been accused of being a religious fanatic. Some of us, it's been said of us, we've lost our mind. My mom, when she was alive, uh, when I first became a believer, she went to see her priest of her local church, convinced that I was, a, I was in a cult because I carried my Bible everywhere I went, and he goes to Bible studies all the time. And to his credit, the priest said, well, let me see if I get this right. Your college-age son is reading his Bible all the time and going to Bible studies, and you're concerned about that? And she said, I, I, I guess I see your point, all right? But if you've heard those things about yourself, know this, you're in good company. Jesus' own family said these things about him, but he never let them dissuade him from his calling. Jesus' family would eventually come to follow him. And that's certainly my prayer for my family, as I'm sure it is for many of yours. James, Jesus' older, I don't know if that's true, Jesus' brother, um, I assume he was the next one in line, but I don't know if that's true. He would go on to become a leader in the Jerusalem church. And we read about him in the book of Acts. And he wrote the New Testament book of James. Uh, Judas was one of Jesus' brother. And we have the book of Jude in uh, the New Testament. These guys would eventually, Mary obviously would go on to follow her son. How strange is that? Um, 
But at this point in their lives, they didn't believe. And actually, whatever their motivations were, I like to think it was from a positive place, whatever their motivations were, they sought to hinder the Lord and the work that God had for him. And so don't be surprised if the world thinks you're crazy for following the Lord. Don't be surprised. I find it interesting that in our society today, it never seems to think that out-and-out passionate and sacrificial devotion to a cause suggests craziness unless that cause is eternal and spiritual in nature. And so the person that devotes themselves, what we might call a workaholic, we look at that and say, man, look at the drive of that individual. And we almost commend them for that. You know, the person that there's this cause that they're just passionate for on the earth, we commend them for that. We give them awards. We hand out Nobel Prizes to those particular individuals. But you do the same type of thing and you sell out, if you will, for eternity's sake. And suddenly the world begins to accuse you of being a crazy fanatic. That's what they accuse Jesus of. Now, his interaction with his family, it's going to need to be postponed for a second. And so we have a little section in between here because prior to being able to interact with them, he once again has a confrontation with the religious leaders. And so you have this great religious revival that is taking place in northern Israel in the Galilee region. And the only people that really seem to be bothered by it are the established religious leaders of the day. That's very interesting because if you read the history of revivals around the world, the people that most seem to oppose those religious revivals are the religious leaders of the day. It always seems to spring up as sort of a work of the, uh, the laity, so to speak. The average individual, God begins to do this work and it begins to spread rapidly and it clearly becomes a movement of God's Holy Spirit and the ones that almost always seem to be concerned are the established religious leaders. That's exactly what's going on here. And so verse 22, it points out that a religious delegation, it comes from Jerusalem. This would have been, I mentioned this, I think, two weeks ago. This would have been the official delegation from the Sanhedrin down in Jerusalem, sent up north to deal with this fella that is up there, this carpenter. Somebody needs to go up and put this religious fanatic in his place to deal with him. And it says the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. Now Luke's gospel sheds a little more light that gives us a little more context to the, the statement that they make. So look at verse 22. This is in Mark. It says, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. Now, that seems kind of random. Just out of nowhere to say that. And so Luke's gospel, which tells us the same account, it adds some information for us, for us which is helpful. Luke chapter eleven fourteen says, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. Now, if you keep reading in Luke, then it goes on to say, and they said he drives out demons by the prince of demons. See, that's the context. And so Jesus had just healed a man of his demon possession, and the official delegation, everybody's amazed, the official delegation has to give a reason, well, then how's this guy able to do this thing? And the reason that they give is that he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. Now Beelzebul, you can do research into it and dig into it, it's essentially a pseudonym for Satan. And so their claim is that Jesus is empowered by Satan to go to war against Satan. That doesn't even make any sense for us sitting here, you know, 2,000 years later. It doesn't make any sense. 
But they were so prejudiced against Jesus and his ministry that what does sense matter? And so they make this accusation hoping it will stick and people will walk away from Jesus. Now he responds to their illogical statement. Verse 23, he says this, He called them to him and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? He calls them out for their foolishness, the foolishness of their idea. But he does so in a way that is somewhat gracious. I'll tell you about it in a minute. (laughs) Because we've been reading. It started in chapter 1. It was again in chapter 2. Here it is again in chapter 3. These people, one time it seems like they're following him around to call them out on certain things. At some point in time, you're like, look, man, I'm done with you, okay? Jesus could have, when they said he, he cast out demons by the prince of demons, he could have said, you know what, blah, or something like that. And he could have threw his hand at them and said, I'm done with you people. I'm not interested in you. But I appreciate he doesn't. And he talks to them and he confronts them on the lack of logic, the illogical statement that they make here. And he quotes Abraham Lincoln. He says this. Maybe it's the other way around. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. What Jesus does is he shows that if he were an agent of Satan and was working against Satan, then surely Satan's kingdom is in the midst of a civil war and it's not going to stand much longer. Remember, Satan's aim is to control men through demons, not to free them from demons. And so if Satan is empowering Jesus to cast out Satan, then Satan would be working against himself and frustrating his own purposes. Now, does that make sense to anyone here in this room? Certainly not. Of course, Satan's not going to work against himself by empowering Jesus to work against Satan. And so if Satan is actually making war with his own demons, then he's effectively finished. It's just a matter of time. Jesus says that if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand, but he's coming to an end. Now he continues the parable, and Jesus is about, as we're, this is the first set of parables here, as we get into the next couple of chapters, a lot more parable teaching that you may be familiar with that the Lord used. He continues it here, and he points out that it's not, that's not the way that wars and conflict work. People don't turn in against one of themselves. They don't have a, a civil war, and that advances their efforts here. He says this, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. The defeat of the demons doesn't show, did not show that Jesus was in alliance with Satan. Rather, it shows this. It shows that Satan's defenses had already been breached by a stronger one, which is Jesus. So here's what Jesus is essentially saying. He says, look, the work that I'm doing is not proving that I'm under Satan. It's proving that I'm stronger than Satan. Now he leaves the parable and he confronts those teachers. And he either speaks directly to them and confronts them, or he speaks to his disciples about them and confronts them. Look at 28. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. 
Again, I don't know if he was specifically talking to them or if he was talking about them. But either way, he, he says that they are committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because, as it says in verse 30 there, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. According to Jesus, there is no forgiveness for the person who commits the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What were these scribes doing? They were looking at love incarnate, God's incarnate son, come to this world to give his life on behalf of the people, and they were declaring that he was empowered by Satan. What these scribes, what these religious leaders had done is they allowed their prejudiced opinion of Jesus to blind their heart and to blind their mind to the obvious working of Jesus. Now, if you read your Bible, you know that all sin is forgivable if man repents, woman repents, and turns in faith to Jesus Christ. All sin that we may commit is forgivable for the person that repents and turns in faith to Jesus Christ. It is possible, however, to continue in such a way that a person's conscience becomes, as Paul said in 1 Timothy, seared as if it were with a hot iron. It is possible to sin in such a way that the heart hardens over and is no longer able to repent, where the heart loses all desire to repent. And as Paul would write in another place, is ultimately given over to a strong delusion. That's what Jesus is saying these scribes are at risk of having happen to them. Because it's, it's, I think it's pretty simple. If a person denies the vehicle of forgiveness, and the vehicle of forgiveness, every one of us in here that is a Christian, we came to Christ in the exact same way. Now, the particulars may be a little bit different, but we came to Christ in the exact same way the Holy Spirit prompted us to come to Christ. That's God's vehicle of forgiveness. And if a person denies the vehicle of forgiveness, then that person is cutting themselves off from the possibility of forgiveness. That's what these scribes and Pharisees are doing. If a person refuses the guidance of God's Spirit often enough, he will become, in the end, incapable of recognizing the guidance of God's Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the sin of the willfully blind who persistently refuse God's leading in their lives. And Jesus says here that for such there can be no forgiveness. Because as we said, they refuse the only way of forgiveness that God has provided. Now sometimes Christians themselves worry that they have committed the unpardonable sin. Maybe there was a particular thing they did that they never thought that they would do. You know, I, I used to tell people not to do this thing, and then I did it. Have I committed the unpardonable sin? And sometimes Christian worry that, worry that they have. I'll say this. If you are worried that you have committed the unpardonable sin, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Because the very fact that you're concerned indicates that your heart is still soft to the conviction of sin that the Holy Spirit brings. And so when Jesus brings up here this idea of the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' words were never intended to torment, torment any of us anxious souls that may be here. If we're honestly desiring to know the Lord, those words were never meant to torment you because of a sin that you may have committed. Rather, the whole point of it, the whole context of it, it was meant to stand out as a warning to those that persist in their rejection of Jesus Christ. 
the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, with that notice, we go back in our passage to where verse 20 and 21 left off. It picks up in verse 31. So you remember back in verse 20, it says, He went home, and the crowd gathered against him and uh, about him, and his family came to seize him, saying they're out of his mind. Now it picks up in 31, And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And so Jesus, the place he's at, he's in a home. He's not in a, a place like this. He's in someone's home. The place is packed. And people are pressing in on him, as we said earlier, so much so he couldn't even take time to eat. Here we see people are pressing in on him so much so that his family can't get near enough to seize him, to forcibly remove him, to bring him back to Nazareth 25 miles away. And so unable to get close to him, to, to whisper in his ear, come on, you need to go, or whatever, come on, honey, come with me. Unable to get close to him, they send in word to others. Tell Jesus his mom is here, his brothers are here, he should come out because they want to talk to him. Now these aren't the words they use, but this is essentially what they're communicating. This is the gist. They say, we want you to stop teaching all of these people and doing these miracles that you are doing so we can take you home and lock you away in a padded room. That's what they're saying to him. We want you to stop doing what God sent you here to do so we can take you home away from all of this. And so even if their motivation may be a good one, it's hindering what God wants to do uh, through Jesus in this instance here. And some of us, and, and this is for myself here, sometimes as a parent, we may do this with our children. And so God may be putting his call on our children's lives, and we may be Christian parents, but we're concerned about what that call might mean for our children. And so sometimes as parents, out of a motivation of love, we hinder our kids from doing what God has called them to do. Can you, you see where I'm going with that? Or well-meaning, we may talk to someone and God is saying, you know what, I, I really, God is calling, say, our friend to, to do something. And it might seem crazy to the world. And we're a good Christian person, whatever, and say, you know, you should really think about that. Have you considered what that might mean? And we might, and that's good. It's good to think and consider and make sure. We don't want to just jump into things. But we certainly don't want to cross over where we hinder them from doing what God would have them to do. And so no wonder Jesus says this. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around them, he said, here are my mother. Here are my brothers. He says, whoever does the will of God, he's my brother and my sister and my mother. Now you might expect that Jesus's family would have special privileges. If they need Jesus, they get Jesus. My dad kind of has special privileges in my life. And so if I'm in a meeting, normally if I'm in a meeting, I, I hit that little button that says I can't talk right now. But if my dad calls, I stop the meeting. Because my dad, is, he's a widower now. He's kind of by himself. And he might need me. And you'll have to wait. Or whatever it may be. I don't think I take the phone call right now. I, I tell you that. All right, but he kind of has special privileges. He gets pushed up to the top. I don't even take calls from my wife unless she calls back right after. We have this little code. You call back twice, I answer the second one, we'll, we'll figure it out. And we know, you know, oh, I just want to say hi. No, but I'm going to meet it, you know. We, we got a rule, all right? But, but it works there. But you would expect Jesus' family would have special privileges. Now, don't forget, though, that the brothers of Jesus never seemed to be supportive of his ministry until after his resurrection. In John chapter 7, I don't think we have the verse for you, but in John chapter 7, it says something to this effect where they're, they're sort of like goading Jesus. 
yeah, you know, if you're so big, why don't you go down there and let everyone follow you? You know, this kind of a little sarcastic uh, little comment that they make to him. But Jesus here, he demonstrates to us that God's interest is above natural ties. And Jesus here is looking, at the very least, at these 12 newly appointed apostles, any others that may have gathered there as well to learn from him. And he saw a group that even though they would ultimately abandon him in their hour of need, he saw a group of men, and maybe women, that had consecrated their lives to God. And Jesus says, this is my mother. These are my brothers, my sister and so on and so forth. And in his answer, Jesus demonstrates that all merely natural relationships are to be superseded by those of a spiritual character. A Christian is bound by a stronger cord with a fellow Christian than they are to actual blood relatives, if those blood relatives are not saved themselves. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that we abandon our family upon coming to Christ. We want to win our family upon coming to Christ. But what it does mean is that there is something greater that binds believers together or people together than the blood that runs through our veins. And that's the blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary. So the Lord has blessed us in this church. It's a gift to be a part of a local body of believers. And I believe this church is a gift to this particular community. It certainly has been a gift in my life. The Lord has blessed us to be in fellowship with one another. And our prayer is certainly that the Lord would continue to knit our hearts together as a body of believers for his glory. And so I want to encourage you, if you find yourself as a part of this church, and you know, you come in initially, you're checking it out, you're thinking about it, they're kind of weird over there, I'll sit on this side, you know, and you're just kind of checking it out. But if you've made the, the, the commitment essentially, yeah, this is the church I'm going to go to, then I want to encourage you, invest in the lives of others in this church and let them invest in your lives as well. And so again, it's the reason why we have our small group ministry, so that can happen. It's the reason why we're doing the ministry fair out in the hall this morning. I do want to encourage you, take some time, stop by the tables, talk to some of those folks there, and begin to invest in the lives of other people and let them invest in your life as well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for uh, these things we've considered Lord, I pray for any of us in here that perhaps maybe we came in, maybe not using these terms, but we thought maybe that sin that we committed this week, this weekend, last night, was the unpardonable sin, and we've, uh, we've doomed our chances. Lord, I pray that you would flood into that person's heart and in their mind that anyone that is in Christ, there's a place of cleansing and a place of washing. And when you look on them, you see the righteousness of Christ. And so, Lord, would you comfort those that need to be comforted? Lord, I pray for all of us here, Lord, that you would challenge us, that we might leave here ready to walk uh, a little more on firmer footing than uh, when we came in here. Lord, to proclaim who you are, to live out uh, what it is you have for us, to share our lives with other people, to invest in their lives and have them invest into ours for your glory. And so bless your word that went forth in our hearts this week, we pray in Jesus' name.
never ending. The glory goes beyond all things. Let justice and grace become my embrace. and praise become my embrace to love you from the inside out everlasting your light will shine when all else fades never ending your glory goes beyond all pain and the cry of my heart is to bring you praise from the end Side out, Lord, my soul cries out. Side out, Lord, my soul cries out from the end. Side out, Lord, my soul cries out. Amen. I'll remind you, ministry fair, all church prayer tonight at 6. 
Matthew 28 says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, after the resurrection, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. That promise continues to today. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.